I believe he means television, sir. That particular form of entertainment did not last much beyond the year 2040. What do you guys do? I mean, you don't drink and you ain't got no TV. Must be kind of boring, ain't it? A lot has changed in the past 300 years. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We have eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy. This is the 24th century. Welcome back to Spotlight. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different for this episode. This is another one of our supplemental episodes where we dip outside of our usual mission to find out if us as three non-trackies can become fully-fledged fans of the Star Trek universe. Uh, for now, we're going to discuss in today's episode about how... Obviously, if you look at Gene Rodbury's vision of the future, it's a very utopian uh, vision of peace and harmony amongst all the uh, races and galaxies. And we want to discuss whether this is actually something that's possible. And if it is, how on earth do we get there from the current state of the world that we're in now? To help us discuss this, we're going to be joined by Paul Sung. Hello. Uh, Paul is a documentary director. Uh, I think in general we tend to make quite politically leaning documentaries, Paul. Yeah, so the first one um, is called Sleep of Mods Invisible Britain. So it's about a band from Nottingham and we followed a tour that they did of um, sort of neglected places, towns and cities around the UK in the run-up to the general election in 2015. Um, and the band are, you know, one of those, I would say, artists that a lot of people relate to because they kind of voice a lot of um, feelings for people that feel disenfranchised, feel that, you know, they've been abandoned by the state in some ways. And they were going to places on this tour that were, would later, I guess, in a way become, you know, what were known as the Brexit heartlands, really. So, we, you know, that was my first film, and we followed them. And everywhere we went, you know, the documentary's not, not just about the band, it's about these areas that have suffered from decades of deindustrialization and now austerity. So that was the first one. And then the second one, which came out last year, is called Dispossession, the Great Social Housing Swindle. Um, and it's all about what's happened to council housing and social housing over the last few decades. Um, and you know, there's a massive reason we have a housing crisis because council housing has just been neglected and mismanaged um, all over the country. You know, not just by national government, uh, but also at you know local authorities, particularly in London. So yeah, my first two films have definitely got a political focus. Um, the one I'm working on at the moment is um, about the X-ray spec singer Polly Styrene, uh, which I'm making with um, Polly's daughter Celeste. And that one um, isn't really overtly political. I mean, obviously Polly and who she was um, as a person and as an artist, she was someone who blazed a trail for women in punk and also someone, you know, who as a, as a biracial woman from a council estate did a lot for, I think, um, you know, for people that were working class, for people of colour who, you know, saw Polly and she inspired them to realise that they could, you know, 
go out and do things like that. So I suppose I suppose it's got you know um, a small political element to it. But um, yeah, my work is definitely focused on political documentaries at the moment. I was thinking, like when you were doing the documentary uh, for the Sleep of Mods, you know, mm. you were going to these what became the Brexit heartlands. Yes, you know, it's pre the referendum, that kind of yeah. thing, and it's also pre an election which people actually at the time couldn't call. Would yeah. you say like it's like it was a surprise because they were able to consolidate power and not need to be propped up by the Lib Dems? Mm. Was did you get this sense that this was ha- going to happen on your wall? No, no, I didn't. I mean, we were going around the country sort of you know february march and then we you know the election was then in may wasn't it um and yeah they 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 won by was it 12 seats something like that and it was a shock because everyone expected i think um it to be potentially another coalition but there was hope that maybe labor would win um but i didn't really get a sense of um of of it being anywhere near likely that there'd be another majority Tory government. Hmm. Um, it just goes to show there are a lot of shy Tories in, in the country. Well, they're, they're not anymore. It's just the thing, because I think you go to the same areas in 2017 and people mm. feel maybe a little more emboldened to sort of speak their piece, mm. whatever that may be. And so you're almost seeing the calm for the storm almost, mm. where the battle lines are kind of more drawn now, aren't they? <coughs> yeah, I mean, I think obviously, you know, the Tories... One, because a lot of the people that probably would have voted UKIP voted for the Tories because they believed that the Tory party would, um, you know, in this last election put Brexit through, but that didn't obviously really happen in the last election. Um, but I mean, going back to 2015, uh, I mean, UKIP still hadn't actually won a seat, had they? I think the, the guy that was the Douglas Carswell was already a sitting Tory MP that then crossed over to UKIP. So I think a lot of the people that, you know, would have perhaps you know being in favor of um, brexit aren't necessarily tory voters but i think they don't trust labor to put brexit through um whereas you know Theresa may seems to have you know grudgingly admitted that brexit is going to be what's going to happen and although i don't think she believes in it and i don't think a lot of them believe in it they will put it through because you know that is the will of the of the people the people have voted for it and whether it, you know i voted to remain but if you have a democratic process, um, yeah, people may have been lied to and people may have been, you know, duped into voting for it. It's it's very difficult now because, you know, if you have a referendum and then you have a result and you don't follow that result, what happens then is the whole process devalued. Yeah, certainly people, if you're trying to kind of get them to trust in into a system that works again and try and, you know, get their buy-in, mm. you can't then do a U-turn on, on something yeah. as big as that. Even though there are particularly good reasons for stopping it or kind of jumping mm. off this almost freight train and, and saying, well, it is advisory or that kind of thing. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it, it's too big of a thing in a lot of people's eyes to sort of turn mm. around. I mean, as you said, it, it would completely, I think... Um, there was a big turnout for for the EU vote, and I mm-hmm. think if they then you know didn't go through with it, um, it's going to put even more people off politics. And maybe that's what needs to happen. I yeah. don't know. So for all our foreign listeners, this has been uh, the UK politics update. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're still with us after that. But I mean, it is it's one of those things where it does affect the world. I mean, I know that one of the our guests, previous guests on this podcast, Stephen Chumble actually predicted Trump's win um, when we voted out of the EU. I remember he actually posted a status up on Facebook going, Trump's going to win. Because it's that thing of suddenly, for so long, everyone was just like, oh, this is just a joke. We're never going to leave the EU. Like, Trump's never going to become president. And suddenly, it was like, Mm -hmm. oh, 
the title. the first seal, wasn't it? Something no, is happening here. I was just saying that those waking up to those results those two times was not uh, particularly fun. And I think no. just having uh, a hung parliament this time was cause for celebration. <laughs> just it did, yeah. like, you know, when looking at the phone first thing in the morning, just go, oh, good, thank goodness. Yeah, it was at least the best you can ask for. It's the best you can ask for. I've you know, changed my parameters of what I'm going to go over the moon for like in the last two years. We've all learned our standards. <laughs> so, I mean, this is something you're really passionate about, Paul. It's obviously driven you forward in terms of making these documentary films. One film I was going to ask is Sleaford Mods. Uh, obviously, you quite a successful band, everything mm. like that. That was your debut feature. How did you get involved in that? Um, yeah, I, mean, I didn't go to film school and didn't really have any desire to be a filmmaker, really. And I met them in 2014 and I interviewed them and Andrew from the band mentioned they were doing this tour of these places and a sort of thought struck me, you know, like it would be an interesting idea for a documentary to follow a band who are kind of giving a voice to people that maybe feel they don't have one around these areas, you know, across the country. And the, 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 the term Invisible Britain just came into my head. Um, I think it, it was inspired by the the Grant Morrison comic, The Invisibles, it kind of like, you know, mm. sort of was morphed from that really. And it sort of stuck in my head for a little bit, um, a couple of months went by and it just wouldn't go away. And I'd obviously never made a film before, so I contacted um, a friend of mine, Nathan, who I co-directed the film with, um, who was uh, studying um, at film school at the time and you know, had a chat about how it would work, what we would do, approach the band. And they said yes, and within, um, we, we crowdfunded, you know, the first part of the budget. And so I would say, you know, from from first concept, which was, you know, November 2014, it was then out the following year in October in cinemas. So it was a very rapid um, stream of events, really. And, and I suppose that was because I didn't really know it, it needed to be a different way. Um, didn't have those preconceptions, just like... Yeah, I just straight in. I yeah, I mean, you know, not to blow my own trumpet and compare myself to Orson Welles, but <laughs> Orson Welles referred to. <laughs> well, I mean, he he used to when he made Citizen Kane, he mm. referred to having you know the confidence of ignorance, mm. and when you don't necessarily know what the rules are and what you should do, then you can you have less excuses. Yeah, you can break them. And I just thought, yeah, we'll, we'll do this. We'll put it out, and people said, oh, it's amazing that you did that from from nowhere to, to eleven months later. And I suppose it is. Um, but I mean, you know, if I could go back, there's so so many things I'd change about the film because films are never really finished; they're just released mm. you know, because you can tinker with them and tinker with them. And a lot of people do have that where they just cannot let go of a film. I know a couple of people that have been making films for like years mm. because they're not ready to release it, and that's you know it's understandable because it is a very careful craft, and you know this is this is your films in a way are like you know. Um, well, they're not like they're not like a baby or anything like that because you don't have to feed them. But um, you know, you do need to. Um, you can't edit something to death. I, yeah. I think this is the thing where I I, I did go to film school. Mm. Two things: one thing about like conformity and learning the rules. There was there was that, but they were so annoyed with you if you tried to do anything that was kind of a bit more avant-garde or mm. trying to go out out of thing or try and do anything a bit more mainstream even they were just thinking well you know where's the message and where's the you know and also you, you stepped over the line there or you know with the with the camera and mm. it's amazing like how they're coming down like mm. a ton of bricks it kind of just stifles creativity mm. I was going to say is at film school we had this project we got in for semester mm. we barely finished the time for screening and then the director kind of said you know oh before next term why don't we just go back and try and just finish it off and it, and it was a complete re-edit and it just weirdly 
everything that kind of worked in the moment because you were up, up against it we kind of just did a different way and when they showed it to people it said you know you've, you've it's kind of lost what it had that energy you had the first time around we were so more proud of like we finally fixed it and it's yeah <laughs> what have you done yeah. but it's that thing isn't it because your films tend to be topical that kind of puts a pressure on you to be like well you know I can't mess about I've got to release it because yeah. otherwise it's going to lose its topicality yeah, I mean, particularly with dispossession really because you know the housing crisis um, the, a lot of the People and the estates that feature in the film are under imminent um, danger of, you know, having demolition orders passed, and you know these places won't necessarily um, be there in, mm. in in or in the same way in like two three years. So it was, you know, urgent for us to release it because, you know, the Crescent Gardens, the Aylesbury Estate are fighting, you know, demolition orders as we speak, um, and so obviously we, we released the film. It, premiered on the 8th of June which was election night um, and then five days later Grenfell Tower happened so it was obviously the film was already relevant but it was made even well, it was made grimly relevant by what mm. happened with um, the fire there and um, no doubt the film's um, success and the film connecting with an audience was down a large part to a renewed interest in council housing because it's been you know denigrated mm for the last two decades, you know, in the arts and media as well, and people's perception of what a council estate is and the type of people that live on them is completely skewered. Mm. Um, there's a dangerous thing out there with these you know, poverty poor narratives that people who live on estates are undeserving and no good, and that council housing is like A&E, it's somewhere where you end up when you're in real trouble, whereas it was never what it was intended to be. So it is important, you know, when you're making these films, that timing is everything, and both films were very timely and came out at a, a good moment. And that was really, in a way, because, you know, I, I self-distributed both films, and I could have waited for a distribution deal, and it could have taken, like, months. Mm -hmm. And then once you find a distribution deal, you've then got to wait six months because they want to do everything. But yeah. I knew we didn't really have that time because, you know, I wanted to run a campaign in tandem with the film about housing, which is what we did. We did Q&As all over the country. So... Yeah, I mean, all, all documentary filmmaking is, um, well, not all documentary filmmaking, but certainly in, you know, in politics, as you know, um, a week is a long time. Mm. And so if you've, you've made a film, um, you know, you do need a bit of a run up to it. So I mean, I think we've, the final cut was around about April and then we released in June. So even in that two months, so loads of things happened. But. Yeah. Well, like you say, even the Grenfell thing is a huge, huge thing to happen. And as a result, obviously it became uh, a far bigger concern, uh, but obviously that's a massive thing that completely changed uh, the state of play. I mean, when I watched Dispossession, um, I saw it here in Brighton, you know, I kind of viewed it as a sort of rally cry protest film in a lot of ways to be you know the whole point of it was to go look at what is happening we need to try and change this mm. yeah no that was I mean people of a couple of people have I suppose criticised the film because it doesn't provide answers or solutions and it wasn't intended to I don't think that that is a filmmaker's job necessarily to solve or to even think you could come up with a solution mm. to such a massive problem because there isn't one fix-all solution for the housing crisis. I mean, it requires a lot of will, mainly from, you know, the 650 MPs that sit in Westminster to actually change things. Um, so what we really wanted to do with it was to actually just highlight what had happened in terms of, you know, mismanagement and neglect of estates because a lot of them have been deliberately neglected. 
Um, and a lot of you know local authorities will point to cuts from national government, which is which is true. You know we can't get away from that. But the way that a lot of the council estates have been managed or mismanaged and neglected by local authorities has meant that they've fallen into states of disrepair. And that's now why they're you know, claiming they need to be demolished. But really, in a lot of cases, it's so that they can you know, knock these estates down and build new housing. And hopefully, you know, they'll say, right, we can, we'll bring everyone back and then we'll also have luxury apartments for sale. But you know, as you saw in the film, that didn't happen on the Haygate estate where you know, a thousand homes were demolished. Um, and then they built um, 2,700 odd new homes. And of, of that number, only 82 were available at social rent. So. You know, that's Southern Council or Labour Council, so, you know. Yeah, I've worked in um, what's called the uh, Troubled Families Programme in West Sussex, and the situation here was that there was zero, like, emergency accommodation left. In West Sussex, it was tapped out. Over 100 families, um, you know, on that serious register of, like, we need to put some, put them somewhere. And they were coming to Gatwick, and they were going being put places far beyond their support networks, beyond where the schools were, and it was breaking families because there wasn't there any any support there, and there was mm. and the people I was speaking to was like they've never known it as bad as it is at the moment. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen the um, Ken Loach film, I Daniel Blake, that was based on a true story of a woman who was moved from London up to Newcastle. I mean, families are being moved that far, um, and in some cases, you know, they might want to go, um, but in pretty much most of them. It's a kind of case of either you know you you move to this house in this area or you've you know made yourself deliberately homeless. Exactly. Yeah, that was that the phrasing like intentionally homeless like could be used sort of as a sort of weapon almost rather than that you mm. know supporting. And it was it was weird because it was the same local authority who kind of caused a lot of the problems in the beginning by um, uh, you know not when the council tax hadn't been paid, not saying that's a, oh, that's a warning, but coming straight down on like a ton of bricks with, you know, bailiffs, it was kind of, there was no kind of like, oh, something wrong, can we help at all? It was more kind of like this straight on the punitive and that, and it just escalated from there. And it's so, you know, so it's more like, and then you end up paying for it because, the, and taxpayers do, because they're going to, emergency accommodation costs like so much more than if you just sorted the housing problem yeah. and keep them in the property and make it livable. And I believe the film did get some attention from kind of the right places in terms of maybe actually getting something done about it. So it was screened in the House of Parliament, right? Yeah, it was screened in the House of Parliament. Um, we've done Q&As with Carol Caroline Lucas, um, with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I mean, the, the, the thing with any of this, um, the problem is, you know, it, I, until you can actually, um, you know, get legislation through Parliament or until, you know, one of the council, so one of the campaigns wins their battle against one of the councils and there's a legal precedent set in law, then, you know, it's it's very difficult to see any way out of it. And I think, um, you know, you only have to look at the what happened, I think, a couple of years back where there was a human habitation bill to make homes habitable for uh, people to live in them and it was voted down by you know 71 Tory MPs who are all landlords mm. you know so I don't think personally that MPs should be able to vote on any legislation that they have a direct business yeah. interest in so I mean if you've got MPs that are landlords and there are many of them it's just such a split it's, it's like yeah. absolutely ridiculous mm. like you know it's it's it, that thing I mean, but there's loads of that isn't there with politicians have their fingers and loads of kind of business pies going on which yeah. directly affect what they're voting towards not just with mm. landlords as well and you just like, well, it's out in the open it's like we can yeah. see this we can see all this happening like but somehow we allow it to go on yeah but 
from all of this what would Gene do what would Gene do that's the thing so this is what we're going to try and discover today before we move into this Paul uh, what we usually do with guests is kind of run down their Star Trek credentials. So how much Star Trek have you seen? How into it are you? Yeah. I have been into Star Trek since I saw Star Trek 3 at the cinema the year it came out, which I'm guessing would have been 84. Mm. Um, and then also I went back and watched The Wrath of Khan. And then I watched, I've seen every single episode of Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. I didn't really get into Enterprise you know, I love Scott Bakula. I think he's a brilliant actor. I love Quantum Leap, but Enterprise just—I don't know. Just I'm... Quantum Leap and Voyager were like tandem. It's like one after the other with me yeah. in the nineties. It was a great double bill. Yeah. But, you know, but when it came down to Enterprise, like yourself, couldn't connect. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen a few episodes, and I've seen the final episode where um, Will Riker and Diana Troy come in. Spoilers. For <laughs> <laughs> um, the end of the it, show, it's an infamous like final episode, which is yeah. an insult to anybody who is like actually a fan of Enterprise, isn't it? Like, it is, yeah. yeah. But and then I. <laughs> I loved the reboot. I think it was great. I don't like the new Klingons. I think they look a bit silly. I always think the classic Klingons. You talk about Discovery now. Discovery and the actual film. And the JJ Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I thought the um, first one, the reboot, was was a re- was a stroke of genius. Yeah, what it was such in the a continuity. Ride, isn't it as well? yeah. 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 And as we kind of like the more, I mean, I'm me and my and uh, all three of us actually are revisiting or going for the first time for, for me, first time the original series, mm. and to see how much actually got put into that reboot in terms of this people complain about it not being Star Trek mm. it is so Star Trek and it's so yeah. much there's many many things and incidents within that that have come from episodes and yeah. just form this well this package <laughs> that works what yeah. 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 Exactly. yeah really really yeah, good yeah. I think in, you know, knowing more about it I kind of think wow it really really knocked out the park yeah. I mean it's, it's interesting with Star Trek because I mean I, the Discovery I've seen a bit of Discovery I've, and I'd like it but I've just not got around to watching like the last few episodes in the first half mm. um, but what I've always really liked about Star Trek was the you know the it was allegorical in many ways and you know obviously Rodney had this vision of the future that we would have this utopia and we would have got rid of things like you know famine and poverty and all these things and homelessness mm. and money um, as well just straight up yeah cards. I mean yeah. I was never a fan of the classic series that much I mean there are some brilliant episodes obviously of, of all of them probably City on the Edge of Forever is an amazing piece of television um, but I, I only really got mainly into it from next gen okay um, and i've watched probably next gen i've probably seen the whole thing all the way through a few times um it's sometimes i just put it on while i'm working like if i'm writing um, and i don't want to listen to music i'll just have next yeah. gen on in the background just to know they're on the bridge behind but it's always that like comforting hum of the enterprise yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, kind of just being on isn't it like the enterprise just, yeah it has this hum no matter what room they're in very well soundproof <laughs> but i mean i i really I've, if i had to pick i mean obviously next gen is it's obviously my favorite but after next gen you know and not going into the movies deep space nine i thought was mm. was brilliant i liked the fact that it was you know episodic in that there would be you know one episode would lead into the next and the whole thing around you know like the, the storyline with the dominion i thought was, was really really strong um voyager you know brilliant to see like um at last for them to get you know a female um captain um because you know you've gone from having um, Captain Kirk, who's this you know alpha male, to having like a, a bald man, <laughs> a polite English gentleman being the captain, to then having like um, a black man being um, in charge of Deep Space Nine, and then to having a woman. So Star Trek has always been far more progressive than a lot of other science mm-hmm. fiction, I think. 
Um, you know, when you look at Star Wars now, has only just started to adjust these kind of things like gender inequality mm. with the mm. last film, really. But Star Trek's been doing mm. that stuff since the nineties. Um, and I think, you know, how do we get to Roddenberry's idea of a utopia? You know what, I think it, whether a utopia can even exist, you know, it's, it's obviously a concept that many people have written about. But I think you've, before you get to utopia, you're going to have to have dystopia. And that's yeah. where we're heading, isn't it? Well, I think Gene <laughs> thinks this as well, you know, because I was looking into this and I was trying to look at how they stated that she managed to get to the case of, obviously, it's the United Federation of Planets, which was meant to be a kind of idealised version of the UN mm. sort of thing. And apparently we've got to get through World War Three for starters, to get us to first contact. <laughs> and then there's the Earth-Romulan War to get to the point where you get the United Federation of Planets getting set up because obviously the UN was a reaction to World War Two, yeah. everything like that. And then so very much, I think he's following that thinking of going right we're going to need it to get really really bad mm. and then maybe this stuff can come out of it yeah. so what you're saying is we won't live to see it but we'll experience the bad times yeah probably <laughs> I post, think so well it's the post-atomic horrors get referenced oh, in there uh, yeah. Farpoint because we watch, we're watching that uh, for upcoming next year's yes. episode and it's like set in like some kind of sh- sham court like Taylor Two Cities or something like that in sort of the terrors and uh, you know there's pe- peasants again it's all gone, gone backwards a bit you know when they're doing yeah. a court episode it's because the budget has been spent on something else <laughs> yeah. so they need to do like a 12 angry men type thing and just set it in like a yeah, compact episode yeah. but they're often they're often really good episodes because the writing has to be so good yeah, Measure of a Man I think is one of the held up which is the one where Data has to advocate well I think I said the card on behalf of Data is advocating his sentient right to live, whereas mm. the other side wanted to dissect him and find out how he works. And um, so that's a really good one. That's a good yeah. one. How will I live? This is the 24th century. Material needs no longer exist. Well, it's it's like almost you feel with uh, Star Trek: Next Generation stuff because when that started, Roddenberry was very much spearheading it again. And yeah, he was going even more full on into completely non-conflict. You know, the human race, racism doesn't exist. Uh, we haven't got money. Yeah, all these kind of things. So to create any conflict, you have to bring something from the outside. So you bring in Q, who's like this kind of almost godlike being. You create something like data to go, okay, so racism um, doesn't exist anymore, but now we've got Android, so maybe something will mm. come out of that. They're trying to learn how we work and how humans operate so he, he's kind of like being taught all these things that yeah. they've already know you know yeah yeah exactly I, I think I think that we uh, the next generation sort of uh, writers on the first season which they went through many 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 of the yes. like all had found it maddening that they couldn't create conflict between the characters like the leads between the show they all got along like a house on fire <laughs> but it, they, it was like they had to create it from the scenarios they were put into and even that didn't really Nobody kind of had post-traumatic stress other than Picard in season four onwards and to the movies. It's like, there wasn't really much need for a ship's counsellor. They were just absolutely perfectly sound of mind all the time. Nobody had any addictions to anything. It was just a clean ship. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was interesting, um, the character of Barclay, um, Mm. played by, is it Dwight Schultz? Yeah, who's Barclay? He's uh, Barclay is um, uh, an officer that works under Geordie LaForge and he basically has got this fantasy of just being on the holodeck all the time. So right. those of you, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but anyone that watched the recent Black Mirror um, episode... Oh yeah, I haven't done that yet. Yeah. Well, I won't give anything away, <laughs> but it explores similar 
kind of terrain to that. And Sabani right. was, you know, not getting his work done because he was always on the holodeck and these mad fantasies about the other characters. Um, but I mean, that watching that Black Mirror episode the other day reminded me of that and how. You know, um, that's what we're going towards as well with, with you know, escapism and VR now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to see a lot more of that. And that's to, probably for a lot of people just but to escape how crap life is. Well, essentially, yeah, so social media is a way of kind of keeping your arm's length from people already. And then, you know, what's what's the next step is if those just replace the other people with, with uh, fake people mm. and, you know, design them and weigh the, re- the responses you want. The dopamine continues flowing and you just kind of like get in touch with that hole because I was reading and reminding myself about uh, Voyager and Seven Nine essentially had to practice her romance romantic techniques on a a, uh, holographic projection of Chakotay so she'd run through it again and again until she kind of got a response or you know was kind of getting some feelings going (laughs) well the interesting thing about the holodeck is that obviously that was created as a leisure activity for this perfect utopian future they could just go off and do that occasionally but really we can't, as you say with VR and stuff we're getting towards that holodeck phase mm. but the difference is is our society hasn't got forward to that level yet so really I kind of feel like that VR technology is going to be a distraction from people because now with automation everything coming in people there's more and more unemployment everything like things like VR technology like you say it's going to be an escape right yeah. from, from the mundanity of our own lives have you, you read Ready Player One? no I've heard good things though. It, very much this situation yeah. where you know it's the dystopian future and, and sort of the oasis is the new internet which is a, a virtual reality world where you would have your schooling everything is accessible mm. and it's an open platform but it's it's, it's kind something. of like No Man's Sky isn't it like there's a whole universe and every planet can do a different thing and within that world you can fly to all these different yeah. planets so, so it's you, a you huge may, area you, you may live in a trailer that's stacked upon another trailer in a trailer park just reaching the sky mm. but you can escape that horrible existence by doing everything through that and I found that really fascinating but there's also another thing about you know the internet at the moment it's like trying, you know governments are trying to take control of it and have some kind of say in how it works. Monetize Very much it exactly. Lot, Same thing with the Oasis in the future. They would, they, they want to be able to crack the code so they can own it, mm. um, rather than being open source and free, you know, freeware. Mm. <laughs> well, good, really good film. Okay, that, well, book, and it will be a film soon. <laughs> Very soon. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? With, with big business as it is now, I mean, you know, a, a businessman is the president, uh, the leader of the free world, essentially. Um, and, you know, can we really get towards this kind of post-scarcity economy kind of where, you know, basically the idea of Star Trek, isn't it? So they've invented things like the Replicator so they can just make stuff for free. 3D print. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you don't have to worry about it. It's like you can... And that's kind of based on this idea of if you can produce goods at a very cheap mm. or minimal cost then it doesn't matter. They can basically be given away for free and then everyone can kind of have what they need to survive, at least. Mm. Um, and then doing what they want to do. Just go on. But yeah, exactly. but if it's, you know, if we run in a world on a capitalist society, basically we can't get to this kind of future as a capitalist society, surely? No, I don't think we can. I mean, 
Because what happens is, even when things like universal-based income are proposed, mm. that will still exist within a capitalist structure. Yes. Um, so some people might argue it's a socialist principle, and there's a good argument for that. But whilst it's within a capitalist framework, it's always going to be controlled and regulated by a structure of power that you know serves you know a small elite of people rather than the masses. I think green energy is a good thing to um, you know think about how we get towards towards utopia. Because if you think about you know what people have gone to war for over the past you know few decades it's been oil hasn't it mm. um, and if you can look towards making green energy like you know affordable to most people rather than it being more expensive mm. than your normal electricity bill you know that points that points you in the right direction but I don't know I mean whether a utopia is even possible I suppose it comes down to what your view of human nature is and obviously yeah. you know you've got I would say, I mean, is there ever such a, a thing as an altruistic action? Because when you do something altruistic, it makes you feel good. So you can also argue that, you know, there is no such thing as altruism. I don't know. Um, personally, I think people generally want to do good, I think. But I also think that people, you know, generally will look out for themselves and their families first because that's self-preservation. And I think, you know, a utopia, is it even possible? I don't know. I doubt it. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you about that altruism. I can't comprehend it. I can't think of it. And I can think of like the most sort of selfless like nun or monk living in, you know, like terrible hard existence, you know, maybe just running, you know, doing something for the sick. But they want to get into heaven. Like yes. so they, there is still something <laughs> that they're gonna get out of it yeah. at the end of it. So it's just like they, there is just nothing. Mm. I, I think you're right, because it does basically <laughs> as you say, Roddenberry's kind of optimistic view does require like a complete change in human nature essentially mm. which is maybe why I mean people often kind of complain about in Next Generation the characters certainly in the old days being slightly robotic mm. kind of thing maybe that's that's why because I mean if we look at First Contact when Picard is having a conversation with uh, the woman from the past Lily yeah, uh, yeah just with Lily just before First Contact was made the economics of the future is somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money? You mean you don't get paid? The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. Yeah, it seems yeah, like completely yeah. removed from her way of thinking, just in the... So you're, think right this is genuinely almost like a different species so when Q turns up in that first Star Trek generation that all Star Trek next generation that almost seems like a mission statement to go oh humanity is so different now we're not the people we once were we're now a completely different kind of race yeah yeah they do they do feel very I mean this is what you found difficult when you started going to those movies Matt mm. it was just uh, that you kind of felt they acted very differently they're, they're very kind of like the humour was very strange to you and it's like we'd had seven years to prepare ourselves for this <laughs> uh, you know we were fine with like this we know these characters but if you're coming into that blind it would be like compared to the original series which is a lot more like we're going yeah, to yeah. settle this with our fists yes. I mean uh, you know, I, as I said in the uh, Next Generation episode which probably has gone out before this um the show at least starts pretty much the same way as Generations the movie does so at least they're setting themselves up for that with a lot of holodeck uh, stuff mm. going on and, and dressing up and getting well, in on that it's like you said the original series you got Kirk 
front and centre, who's very much a classic kind of alpha male. Yeah. It's almost it's based on the kind of Western archetype in a lot of ways. Uh, he is kind of like a cowboy in space, but they've very much still got the idea of the United Federation of Planets in there uh, to push that kind of forward, the principles of universal liberty, rights to equality, to share knowledge. But at the same time, a lot of these stories are based around the characters' emotions and kind of, you know, the the need to the need for violence and anger. <laughs> yeah, gotta unleash. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously television, um, especially in the sixties, was very formulaic, and a lot of the tropes in you know science fiction that were in Star Trek were things that you know would ex- you'd expect to happen. So there'd be you know like a discovery, and then the conflict would come in, and then they'd have like the fight scene, and then Kurt would meet a woman, and you know he'd get off with her, and then <laughs> off they'd go. And um, I think Star Trek was. I mean, I'm not a massive fan of the original series as I said but mm. I think you know Roddenberry has to be commended for you know um, Lieutenant Uhura um, for yeah. you know Chekhov um, for Sulu because you know that was a truly diverse bridge there you know that was and that was revolutionary for television mm. the, apparently the first interracial kiss between Kirk and yeah. Uhura on American TV. On American, American TV, TV yeah. yeah, yeah I bet yeah. we probably did it in the UK before. <laughs> yeah. like but a, still a huge... At the end of the day, at that time, there wouldn't have been any UK TV on US yeah. TV. Or and you know so. that you know there'd have been rednecks in the Deep South, you know, losing <laughs> their minds over that. Yeah, <laughs> there still is today. Still yeah. Are. yeah, yeah, I was going to say, just this kind well, of... This is the thing, this is what people who have problems with discovery seem don't seem to realise, because a lot of people coming out saying, you know, this is not my Star Trek, how, how dare you have such a diverse cast, basically. Mm-hmm. But there's this article, i got a thing where I think it was in reaction to when Discovery started from the Metro back in May and it you know it quoted a bunch of tweets and some people saying like Star Trek Discovery the only white males are a Vulcan a-hole and a wimpy helmsman the show appears to be fully SJW converged and it's kind of like you know what show have you been watching all this time What's that's SJW? crazy social justice warrior oh, right. mm. yeah. I mean you know I think Roddenberry obviously would have been inspired by you know Martin Luther King back in the 60s and I, I was Earlier, I was last year. Um, I was made aware of this speech that he'd given in Newcastle, and he'd said that there are three urgent and grave problems facing the world: war, poverty, and racism. And those three things are still, you know, in our society. I think nothing's changed. Yeah. And those are things in in Star Trek that have obviously been, you know, two of those things have been addressed. But there's still war going on. Mm. But um, yeah, like we were saying, you know, poverty and racism has been, um, you know, removed. But even the war, this is the thing. Even war comes out of an outsider influence. Once you get over the kind of uh, the Romulan uh, human like war early on, you get the United Federation of Planets set up. When there is conflict, it tends to come. Mm. I mean, I know you have the Klingons in the original series, but by the time you get to mm. next gen. They're part of the United Federation. It has come from outside. So you get the Borg, the Dominion, mm. kind of these outside influences that are kind of so far removed from the, yeah. that way of thinking that yeah. they can't come in. It's a good episode of the original series, actually, where um, uh, they went to a planet where there was like this sort of imperialistic kind of um, empire running the show. And by the end of it, like there was a line that Spock, you know, when, when Kirk is like trying to shake them, like you just need to let people have their freedom and like you just need to move on from this and have a democracy. And like Spock just calculates exactly the amount of years the Empire's got left before it, it crumbles anyway. Because you've had probably like 277 years before mm-hmm. revolution anyway, so you might as well just get on with get on with it now because it's not going to last. It yeah. never does. 
It's interesting though, because talking about all these different species, I mean, if they have got rid of racism in like you know, the 24th century, in a way, I always believed, and I know a lot of other people do, that in all of the iterations of Star Trek, the different species represent different countries or different groups of people. So right. the Klingons, I always thought, were meant to represent the Japanese with the belief in honour. Um, you know, I don't know whether the warlike thing is necessarily based on, you know, um, Japan as a country, but more the kind of samurai, mm. the kind of warlords back in sort of feudal Japan. Um, I think the whole situation with Bajor and the Cardassians, that reminded me of what happened with the former Yugoslavia, that part of the world. The Romulans always struck me as being kind of like the Russians in it, you know, because the Cold War was obviously mm -hmm. a big thing. Um, and I think that that did then translate into, you know, other things. And it was always, I guess, racism hadn't gone away because... You know these other races of or other species of people were still distrusted by one mm. another, and you know the Klingons hate the Romulans, and <laughs> you know um, humans are generally sort of still seen as being, I think, white mm. in general, um, and maybe even Western. So yeah, not instead of yeah. war with each other on on Earth, it's just branched out to these different species, but it's still kind of the same thing. It's like it's like you're saying people on Earth in Star Trek time aren't fighting amongst each other; they're not no. at war anymore. It's just gone out, out that way instead. Well, I think it's interesting what you say about the different races and such. I think you're probably right, but I think with the Klingons, they kind of just came to represent whatever they needed to at the time. So, you know, like you say, at the start, it's kind of more kind of Japanese or kind of Nazi-esque. And then later on, you kind of have the Cold War influence and things like the Undiscovered Country. And in that, almost the Federation have become more like an almost kind of NATO type influence, which well, um, is a mutual defence group. Yeah, and of all the, the foibles of real life politicians, where some believe what they're doing is right, others are actually actively subverting it and and betraying the Federation. So yes. it's like just because you're a member of the Federation doesn't sort of suddenly grant you sort of like all this wisdom. Like they, I think there's this Nicholas Myers influence a lot to kind of like by that point, Robin Bree is sort of ailing quite considerably and so his his hold on that is done and they make a lot of controversial decisions about what the Federation can do and some of the characters, you know, do as well. I mean it was their their initial intention to have um, I think I mentioned before Savick is the traitor, not and not oh, really? create another not create another Balkan character. But um Redenbury actually quite liked Savick, even though it wasn't his creation, but he thought that it was no, I couldn't see her portraying the, the crew. Now you have to create yeah. somebody else. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it's just it's there's there's various occasions where like Bonnaby's vision within Star Trek has been watered down, and there's like uh, in the motion picture you see Francis San Francisco skyline, and it's completely different in terms of what what little of uh, city you see is quite built into the greenery of the land. Yeah. So people have like leveled it off, and it's basically now more in tune with like the actual planet mm. uh, and sort of glistening. And then when they redid the the same effect shot for the 2003 director's cut, it was like. A, a much bigger city and then of course the new Abrams versus you know like Blade Runner or something yeah. <laughs> well I think it's funny because I think the writers who have worked on Star Trek for its different iterations uh, especially Next Generation onwards have had similar problems with Roddenberry's vision as, as we're having as in we love the idea sounds absolutely great but is it actually realistic that we can get there? I mean, you know, as I say, it's based on an idealised version of the UN. And obviously, as we know from the UN, obviously it's done lots of great stuff, but there's, there's also kind of, you know, a bad, corrupt side to that. Um, so it hasn't quite worked out. And now, certainly, as we move forward with the future, you know, and we, with 
vote, doing things like voting out of the EU and things like that, are, are kind of groups like this going to crumble as we move forward into the future? Are we going to come more and more separate and apart until something really bad does happen? So I think a lot of the writers were like, oh, I don't believe we'll ever get to this point. Um, we want to write about kind of conflict and racism still being a problem then. And then you get things like Undiscovered Country where there's kind of, you know, conspiracy inside to create um, all kinds of conflicts there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, you know, the more we kind of go into like uh, later on in the series, they have to they have to really take the Federation out of their comfort zone. Voyager, like completely set away from the Federation and all they have is their principles. Like, and that's, I think, January has a line or in that where she does say, you know, that gives me more strength and hope is our belief in the Federation's principles. That's going to keep us safe out here, uh, mm. keeps us together. <clears throat> And they get home against all odds. So I think, spoilers, Matt. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. But season <laughs> seven finale of Starship Watcher. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. That was just a reminder. Like, we did the original series episode. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but there was one of the, our guests picked that episode um, set on a planet where the, this commune almost had erupted, uh, where they, they can grow exactly what they need. Um, they, they're supported by the planet and have just kind of stopped and just are in this blissful kind of like existence. But when they, but it's, they're actually kind of like drugged into that by by sort of the fauna, and when they find the spells finally broken by Kirk, like saying like get a step out of it, they realise they've wasted our, our lives. We, we didn't create, you know, try and expand and do anything else. We just existed, and so he's like saying like if you do have everything, have a universal income, you might lose your drive to be better than you are, mm-hmm. and just <clears throat> staying still isn't an option. So it's almost going against utopias. Then what's the challenge? The challenge, Mr. Offenhouse, is to improve yourself, to enrich yourself. Enjoy it. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose, <laughs> Paul, almost it would seem that your work is an example of that in the sense of the fire in you mm. to create these films has come from terrible shit happening. That I mean, be said, we've yeah. got a, this needs to be said and needs to be put out there. Yeah, I mean, um, if there's a utopia, I'll be out of work. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a comfort in, um, yeah, The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Nilis um, Kundra. They, I think they, it's a novel from uh, Czechoslovakia. I think, you know, when there's the uh, occupation by Soviet forces and somebody in that says you know all of our art like all our best works of art come from conflict and when we feel we've got restrictions placed on us it helps us be more than we are it pushes us mm. you don't get that many great works coming out of places where nothing happens Switzerland being a good example <laughs> apparently <laughs> and then that great line in the third man you know what came out of there peace brotherly love and harmony you know, the cuckoo clock the cuckoo clock well, that's yeah. awesome again yeah. is it yeah. 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 Um, all comes back to this <laughs> well uh, Rod and Heidi Roddenberry, Rod, who is son of Gene, have started the Roddenberry Foundation to try and find innovative solutions to critical global issues in science, technology, environment, education and humanitarian advances. So if they're successful... In, they seem to be trying to work towards Gene's vision of the future. Fighting on several fronts there, but that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, so it's really good. Like, uh, once, it? If they're successful in that, you'll you have to make some nice films, Paul. <laughs> like, uh, like Demolition Man is a like, funny example of that. Yeah, I mean, also um, Escape from LA, a similar thing where society has become ridiculously PC. Homogenised and, and, yeah, it just makes... Yeah, and then swearing is outlawed as... One local council tried to do it. I think was it Rochdale tried to make swearing. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, and they very recently. Yeah, they've now 
realised that it's completely unworkable. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you, I think, you know, as you, you say, you do need conflict uh, in some form to drive art. Um, and it's often that, you know, during periods that are quite, I suppose, turbulent, um, good art does come out of it. Um, but, you know, there's also the argument that, you know, we would all flourish more as a society if we all, you know... If, if, if we all rise together, you know, if, yeah. if, if you have like... If um, we all had time for artistic well, pursuits. Yeah, if we had a bigger safety net for the people that, you know, do slip through the system, mm. you know, because the cracks get bigger and bigger and there are, you know, more than 300,000 people in this country that are homeless. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean they're, they're sleeping on the streets, it means they are without a fixed abode, mm. a permanent fixed address. Um, and until we can solve homelessness, I think, you know, we're not going to go anywhere. That's the fundamental biggest yeah. issue in this country, I think. Bigger than Brexit is the housing crisis. Mm. No, I, I, I do think right. It's, it's one of those things where can you really see when you watch Star Trek, you think homelessness would never exist in this world because these characters couldn't physically walk past someone in that situation and not do something about it and be they'd be like, "Well, this is this is wrong here. What's going on?" Like, you know, it's like no one can get left behind in that way. And the fact that we as a society unless have, you haven't got wall power then fuck. If you haven't got wall junk, it's over. Yeah. You know, we've kind of massaged ourselves into a society where that's just okay. Mm. Isn't it that we could just walk past that and go? Yeah, that's, that's, that's just the way part, it is. That's just part of life, mm. right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you become desensitised to it, and because it's a twenty-four hour news cycle, because mm. nothing is shocking anymore. You know, I think. 9-11 was obviously shocking mm. and then, but then since then when you see there's been a terrorist attack obviously you're you're surprised by it but the shock effect has gone mm, and, yeah. and it's th that level of desensitivity when you walk past and you see someone on the streets I mean, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s I don't remember seeing like anywhere near as many homeless people I grew up in London um, but now you know you here in Brighton you know you, 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 if you if I leave my door in Brighton and walk down towards you know the main high street mm. you will see someone homeless within seconds yeah. you know it's and that's the same in most cities now most in many towns as well so yeah I mean it's uh, it's interesting the 24th century they've got rid of all these problems and you know you've they also seem to have like this um, idea of getting back to a more simple life I mean you know in that episode where Picard goes back to his hometown and his brother's got like a vineyard and mm -hmm. You know, they live in like what looks like a really nice old cottage. I didn't realise that people just make wine just with the computer. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> Robert Picard is still, you know, doing everything really old school. Yeah. Um, maybe that's a bit of a hipster thing because, you know, Star Trek was far ahead of the game in inventing hipsters, I think, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Will yeah, Reich yeah. is a hipster, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. Although we say it's a moneyless society, you do hear them talking about in various iterations start chat about credits and stuff or about having an allotment of credits like and you're almost thinking yeah is that some kind of universal like living income or something like literally just going oh here's your allotment of credits well, for the month what you so, do with it is yeah, up to you. Like that. yeah maybe like you know, good deeds get your credits I don't know yeah. they never really kind of fleshed it out because there are mm. lots of inconsistency about like chartering a space flight well it's like you can't refuse me mate I, yeah. I, I don't pay for it like, <laughs> yeah. you run a space flight I'm having them on board <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's interesting there's also like gold press latinum isn't there yep yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it that's the free 
Frangies uh, like uh, okay. uh, yeah because I mean the Frangies yeah. are all based on they're, they're meant to be a kind of sort of bar well I suppose they're kind of bartering yeah they've got nobody to, nobody to trade with because nobody sorry I haven't got any money uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man well yeah I, I think uh, unfortunately yeah we've got the sad answer mm. if we're probably going to have yeah. to go through a lot more Terrible shit. World War Three. A war with the Romulans. No, yeah, we have to go through all of that until. And also the this. the Genics Wars as well. You know. Yeah, so where, that, well, that's already happened because oh, that was it? in the nineties. Yeah, was that? Oh man, we missed no, that. We, we came close. We came close. That was more Winston Churchill's ideas back in the nineteen tens. Yeah. I think. <laughs> Which Toby Young is um, quite oh, yeah. keen on as well, isn't he? The old Maybe Jensen. Toby Young should have been calm. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine it. <laughs> oh, man. Right, well, on that note, uh, I think that's been a really great discussion. Thanks so much for coming, yeah, Thanks for inviting me. Enjoyed like, it. Uh, it's been a pleasure. You have to come back sometime to actually talk about an uh, individual Star Trek episode that you're a fan of or something. Definitely. I know you've you've told me before that you think Wrath of Khan is, is better than any Star Wars films. I do, I stand by I think the Wrath of Khan is better than Empire Strikes Back. Wow. Um, you know, I do like Star Wars, don't get me wrong, but I think in terms of a piece of cinema, Wrath of Khan is, you know, better than any of the Star Trek films. I mean, sorry, the Star Wars films. I mean, I think there are some stinkers in the Star Trek canon. <laughs> you know, um, I would say, what's the one? Is it Insurrection? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I don't know. 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 I don't Generations was very good because there's this thing in the Star Trek lore that the even numbered films are great, which mm. is generally true, mm. and that the odd numbered films aren't very good. I mean, and I think that does stand. Mm. It's pretty it's accurate. It's kind of guide. swapped now, isn't it? Because they had Insurrection, Nemesis, yeah, ones back to back, and now it's swapped over again. Yeah, but I mean, I think after, after the Rough of Khan, I think six is amazing. Yeah, um, yeah six is really country. good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then yeah the odd ones you know Final Frontier is awful oh we like Final Frontier <laughs> yeah. we're like hidden yeah. fans yeah, yeah, like yeah. Frontier. <laughs> <laughs> so bone, lone voice of sanity in this thing but what yeah. about Search <laughs> Spot that started your love for Star Trek well you know how old was I when that it was like I think it was what year was that 84 84, 84 mm. so I was 8 years old and I wasn't as discerning <laughs> don't be wise I, I wasn't now. discerning as discerning as 10 years ago so it's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> It takes a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the the thing with, with Star Trek is that, you know, the it's so varied. I mean, I know you, yeah. you're going to, at some point, I guess, talk about the animated series as well. Yeah, in, we already fact, have. Yeah, we, we have. We've already done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I never, I've never seen any of them. Oh, okay. You know, actually, I, no, it's a lot. I've seen the one where Spock... So it has this puberty thing. Am I, am I imagining that? I, I, well, we we did a couple of those with the pilot and one of the one that won an Emmy, but that wasn't that. We haven't deep dived yet. Spock had some oh, puberty issues in search of Spock. Maybe that's what you think. About <laughs> no, no, I mean he. There is. I think there right, is one there episode is one. where he gets. Oh, okay. the, what's it called? The, far. Yeah, because yeah. he has it in in the show where it's that famous showdown with Shatner where he has to fight him on yeah. Vulcan, um, which is the only time they go to Vulcan in the whole series. Oh, okay. uh, but. Um, yeah, I think they maybe just dug up that idea again and put it in an mm. animated format. Yeah, but it's um, it was it was curious. It's a curio because it's the, most of the original voices. Mm. Um, you know, I think only James Doohan. No, no, who didn't come back? Doohan's doing loads of yeah, voices. Jake yeah, Jake Dawson. Yeah, no, uh, it's Chekhov. Chekhov's not there. An alien there instead of him. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting, and it wasn't because he didn't want to come back. Yeah, they couldn't afford him. They couldn't stretch the money to all the all the cast members. So, so we can like, lose. Sorry, Chekhov. <laughs> <Jeff, laughs> he was the last of life, first up the door. Yeah, that I suppose classic, so. Yeah. Like you know, uh, 
Like, and did you know that um, the guy who plays Walter, what's his surname? Koenig. Walter Koenig. Yeah, he um, was hired because of his resemblance to one of the monkeys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were really, really going after the kind of British kind of like um, uh, heartthrob look. Right, as right. As that ball cut, like, you know, because yeah. he wore that thing. Right, But they gave yeah. him some ridiculous accent. Just a Russian beetle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Paul, where can we find your films, your work? Was the best yeah, place if you are... Invisible Britain is at um, invisiblebritain.com and Dispossession is at dispossessionfilm.com Nice one. Are you on Twitter? I am. Um, so it's at Sung underscore Paul. So that's at S-N-G underscore P-A-U-L. Um, I'm also at Velvet Joy Limited, uh, which is like my sort of production company. Right, nice one. And so Fantastic. when can we expect your well, next film? Polystyrene. Um Potentially later this year, potentially next year. Um, it's one of those sort of, you know, um, how long is a piece of string <laughs> really? We've not got a release date set yet, so it's still being edited. So any future plans beyond that? Or you concentrate on that? Yeah, right no. Now? There's a few things I'm just thinking. Can I? What I can? Are you jumping into about? a Star Trek yeah, yeah, yeah. fan film? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, funny set. No. Um, yeah, there's a few other projects that I'm just at the moment doing treatments for, so cool. I'm not gonna. Um, Jinx them. You will have to come yeah. back. So you're making maybe a move into narrative. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've got a, a short that I'm, I'm working on. Um, it's being scripted at the moment because I came up with this concept, which I'm not going to give away because someone will steal it. Um, but I want to move into features. That's the long-term plan. I've got one in mind. But before I actually do that, um, I'm going to get more experience directing drama because cool. it's, it's massively different. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to working with actors actually so uh, it's very different I mean um, I, I think I'd always be interested in making documentaries but I you know, would like to give drama directing a go oh it's going to be quite interesting Jay, because you know, you, you've been confronted with such authenticity and such passion in the people, the real people involved it's like getting an actor <laughs> it's like no no it's <laughs> terrible it's not Come on. like that no, mm-hmm. you need to be more despairing please yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you had no suffering <laughs> yeah, yeah so. well we very much look forward to that and obviously I'll put myself forward for a role <laughs> um, you can also find us uh, at Twitter Instagram Facebook at Spotlight Pod you can subscribe on iTunes uh, you can leave us a rating and review there as well five stars only please although if you know if you think less of the show then just don't bother writing in um, <laughs> but yeah no we genuinely love to hear from you and uh, yeah we're always looking at all our kind of social media feeds for any kind of feedback you've got for us so that's great thank you very much uh, so thank you to Paul Sun um, I've been Paul Wilson I've been Liam Dempsey I've been Matt Brothers thank you bye bye